Welcome to the Working Roundtable, a special episode of For Living, an episode for and by patrons of my podcast. This here, this is my opportunity, my pleasure, uh, my honor, really, to share some space with For Living listeners, to listen to them, to learn from them, just to be together with them. Now, of course, if you're a regular listener and you dig what we're trying to do over here, you're cordially invited to become a patron over at patreon.com slash for a living. And if you do just that, you too can have a seat at the next working round table. But for now, I have with me three esteemed patrons of the pod, all of whom have something special in common. It's not that they're all dudes, though this is the first Sausage Fest edition of the Working Roundtable. It's not that they're all stunningly good-looking dudes, though that's totally true, despite the fact that you listeners don't have the pleasure to see their pretty faces. Indeed, what they all have in common is that I've had the pleasure of sharing a classroom with them but in different capacities. For it so happens that today I'm joined by three patrons of the pod, one former student, one former classmate, and a former teacher. And I would like at this moment to introduce the three of them in just that order. Joe Ravesloot was my student in Chicagoland, USA, like... Joe, you'll tell me. It's got to be 20 years ago, 18 to 20 years ago. I have really fond memories of him, and I was just thrilled to learn that he's been listening to the podcast. He became a patron of the pod. Joe, welcome to For a Living. And just to kick things off, could you tell the listeners what you do for a buck? And if you hit it huge in Bitcoin and you had like no practical considerations whatsoever to be concerned with, what would be your dream job? Oh boy. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. For a technology person, I'm um, fairly averse to the Bitcoin <laughs> crypto life at the moment, you know. So I actually am in technology though, um, in the software world. And currently I am a backend engineer, so working on the databases and the, the application logic of some an app you may use, stuff like that. It's been, it's been a journey as far as my dream job goes. Honestly, I think just um, having the privilege to work with people that inspire you and that you can learn from and share knowledge with openly, particularly in my case, doing so using technology and code to solve interesting problems, something that you care about, you know. For me, that might be something in the education space, politics, healthcare, but just to be able to create solutions and solve problems to real world issues and make people's lives better. You know, it's a, I know it's a trope, you know. And if you've seen Silicon Valley, you know, yeah. it's yeah. kind of the kind of the running joke, you know, making the world a better place. But there's a there's a sliver of truth to that. So I think that's where that's where my mind goes when I think about that question. I hear you, man. Listen, I know it's a bit of a trope, but I'm a bit of a hope junkie. And so it brings me joy to know that you will, in one capacity or another, use those technical chops, those coding skills that you have to be part of a broader project, to 
make the world a better place. It's okay to say it. No apologies, man. None whatsoever. Now, Jeff Stein was my classmate in another millennia. <laughs> I guess it turns out that that's true. Uh, but he's a timeless cat. And this roundtable is a perfect time for us to reconnect. Jeff, thanks for patronizing the podcast. Thank you so much for, for being here and being part of the roundtable. How do you describe your occupation? And if you won a class action lawsuit that put your great, great grandkids through college, <laughs> what would you do for a buck then? Well, uh, I am an attorney, so uh, but I don't handle class action lawsuits, at least uh, not from a plaintiff side. Uh, I am an attorney for a small suburb outside of Chicago. Uh, I am the uh, only attorney here, so I represent the municipality itself. Uh, do quite a bit of minor prosecution, but a lot of development, uh, meaning like zoning applications and things like that. That takes up takes up a lot of my day, as well as uh, some human resources. Those are the types of things that I handle on a daily basis, but it can run the gamut from buying property to worrying about someone speeding down the street. So I, I don't get pigeonholed, which is nice. If I had won that class action, and of my great grandkids, I would stay away from the law. <laughs> uh, and I think I would just want to be a prep chef in someone's kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy, I really enjoy cooking. I really enjoy the hospitality uh, industry. And I, if you come to my house, you're going to have to have one of my cocktails and uh, you're going to give me a, a full review. And that's what I really, I really enjoy it. Now, I always fear and I always say that I don't want to go make that my job because then I wouldn't enjoy it. I do enjoy those as a hobby, but if I had no pressure, I can sit there and chop carrots all day long. So in addition to being a hope junkie, I'm a bit of a food junkie too. Stein, I have to ask, if I showed up at your house in Chicago in a couple of weeks, hot day, oh. what's the cocktail that you would slide across the bar into my sweaty paw? A Paloma with uh, a Reposado tequila as opposed to a Blanco. Ooh, why the Reposado? It gives it like that vanilla, almost like chocolatey flavor that goes really well with the citrus. It's weird, oh, but it is so good. I like weird and good. And side note, I'll be in Chicago in uh, five days. Just saying. Well, <laughs> come on over. It'll be hot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Not a stranger to a drink. Maybe a stranger to a Paloma. Bruce Field, loyal listeners to this podcast will recall that after a distinguished career in teaching and learning, you're enjoying a retirement that in my mind's eye looks a whole lot like most Woody Guthrie songs. <laughs> but, but is there a job so dreamy that it might compel you to pivot out of retirement, if only for a while? Thanks for having me on. As uh, Daniel said, I, I'm a retired let's see, history teacher, educator, um, spent 11 years as a high school history teacher, and then another 25 at the university level. And I currently live in uh, Statesboro, Georgia, where I retired four years ago from Georgia Southern University. Stein said if he had his dream job, he'd run as far away from law as he possibly could. Well, Let's turn that totally around. My dream job is the job I retired from. Being a teacher, being an educator, working at both the high school and the university level is uh, was great. It was absolutely everything I wanted. It's a meaningful job. I learned a lot. I grew every day and met an awful lot of nice people. 
Um, but if I was going to be less altruistic, say, and, and, and go for something else, you know, I've spent the last four years putting 100,000 miles on my car, driving around the United States. And one of the things I really like to do is go to minor league baseball games and college baseball games. And I can't tell you how many times somebody has, because I always have a camera with me, somebody has approached me and looked at me and said, you're a scout, right? You're a scout. <laughs> and I've, I've told every one of them no, except for one guy. I, was, I remember I was in Asheville, North Carolina, watching some minor league team, and the guy came down. I'd, I'd pretty much had it with these people coming by and going, you're a scout. And so the guy comes down, and he goes, you're a scout, right? And I just looked at him and said, yes, I am, sir. And I'm here to look at Yelky Cespedes for the White Sox. And... <laughs> but seriously, I love travel. I love old ballparks. I love baseball. So I think if I had my, my uh, dream job, I'd be a major league scout for the White Sox. A perfect response. And I must say, a perfect gig for you. Hey. You're not too old to do it, that's for sure. The major leagues could use some seasoned scouts. Ah, now I'm seasoned. Okay, that's good. Right. Oh, you're seasoned, <laughs> Bruce. Ain't no doubt about it. Plenty of pepper. You're seasoned through and through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So listen, like I said, we've got a former student, a former teacher, former classmate. So it only makes sense that we dive into this roundtable by reflecting a little bit on our experiences in education. Now, Bruce, like you said, you spent a career in teaching and learning, teaching high school, teaching university. Our, our listeners and I had the pleasure of, of hearing you discuss your work in education, but we really didn't get to hear you discuss your own education per se. So let me ask you, how did your education prepare you for your working life? Like, where did it succeed? Where did it fail you? How might you have reshaped your education to have better supported your professional life? Yeah. So Joe was talking about a trope before. I'll give you another trope, which is that if you've been in the world of education, you've probably heard somebody say there's nothing that educators could have done to prepare you for this profession. And I think they're right. I got my undergraduate degree in teaching certification at East Carolina back in the 70s. Had great people who trained me. They didn't fail me in any way. I think they did a, a really good job of focusing me and setting me up with the tools to be successful. That said, they might have been able to say to me on a more frequent basis, you know, Bruce, <laughs> you're going to find stuff out there that we don't even know yet is going to happen, and you're going to have to learn to adjust and deal with it as you go through and do it. But I was very well prepared. I have no complaints whatsoever, and, and it got me a, a really good career. Um, I have no idea what the training would be for a major league scout, so we'll see about that. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that you reflect fondly on your education. Do you think, by the way, that that had something to do with why you ended up going into education? Like, did you feel really supported yeah, as, as a young man? Well, I did feel supported, but no, I think it was just circumstances. Fate, if you will. I like a simple twist of fate. <laughs> Stein, I'm going to take a leap, and I'm going to say that you, like me, uh, were not always thrilled about being institutionalized in the K through 12 times. When you look back on young Jeff Stein and his education, to what degree did that education succeed or fail you? 
did it teach you what you needed to know to thrive in a professional environment? Well, definitely not uh, uh, grammar in uh, high school. Um, but I, I, I don't want to contradict you because uh, I do feel that my education prepared me for the next step each time, right? You're not going to walk out of eighth grade going, okay, I'm ready to be a lawyer, but it did prepare me for high school. And I do think that high school did prepare me for college and college for law school and, and law school for my first job. Were there failures along the way? Of course. Um, some teachers or professors just phone it in. Other times it was my fault and I didn't connect with them and didn't really get anything out of the experience. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I think about some of the classes and the professors that I've had that have taught me more than just what the subject has said uh, that was going to be taught that day. They teach you a little bit more about life and, and, and that's where I felt I was never failed. But, you know, you also, as a student, got to be willing to want to enter into a relationship like that. I stand corrected. You were supported <laughs> all the way through. I'm happy to hear it, though. Now, Joe, you were once my student. I'm not really sure how you reflect on your educational experiences. Maybe you can tell me. Yeah, I think similarly, you know, as I think Jeff was saying, you know, I think I was always feeling like, yeah, pretty, pretty comfortable with the next step. It's just when I, when I hear this question, I think about how I, I guess I, a career switcher. I did undergrad and grad school in linguistics and thought I'd be like a teacher of some sort, you know, they're like teaching English as a second language, or there was a time I was considering speech, uh, speech pathology, ironically, I just, <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, I kind of just fell ass backwards into software because it was hard to find a full-time gig <laughs> with, with health uh, benefits and everything that you'd want from an actual job. So I don't think it's a failure of, you know, the education system per se. And, you know, I went to a, went to a pretty, pretty good school system, reasonably well off suburban school district, as you can imagine. We didn't have like maybe all the bells and whistles that you might think of when you think of the ritzier places, but we definitely weren't, you know, lacking a whole lot. I don't really recall having an opportunity to do like a computer science or coding class before college. So I, I think there was maybe you know, an opportunity there for me personally. But then again, maybe at the time, I just would not have been interested. You know, it's hard to say. I think I had a decent chance to be exposed to a few different things and just having that life experience and learning a breadth of things and meeting people and all those experiences were valuable as well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I should thank you all because I think it's really helpful for me to hear people I trust talk in a reflective way of, about their education, right? I mean, I'm just wrapping up my 22nd year of teaching high school, and it's really instructive for me to, to hear your reflections. I also might add that it's edifying to hear that all three of you, despite like being great critical thinkers and having lots of moxie, all of you managed to, you know, go through life and, and, and reflect mostly positively on your education. So that makes me feel good. It really does. Now, I, I want to ask this here, because um, in addition to being the first dudes only working roundtable, it's actually the first panel that I've had with three American Americans. Now, 
the American work ethic, like the, the, the near fetish for work, it's celebrated in some circles and it's decried in others. But of course, American work life, like America itself, it's large. It contains multitudes, right, as we say. About a third of my audience, maybe a little more, doesn't live in America. I wonder if y'all could talk a little bit about your take on the current state of working in America. Like, what do you wish more foreign observers would consider when they are investigating sort of the problematics of work life in America? Jeff, would you mind if we started with you? No, not at all. Um, it's it's such a broad and in interesting question because my work life is significantly, as an American, is significantly different than than millions of other Americans, you know, farmers, uh, uh, factory workers, police officers. I, I know I'm mainly an office employee. I'm I am somewhat nine to five with with additional responsibilities, including, you know, tonight a, a meeting at 730. But I'm not asked to plow snow 16 hours straight. And I think that's the type of worker where I have concerns. Um, we are, uh, you know, a nation of laws. And a lot of those laws, uh, a, a good portion of them, deal with employment and employees' rights. And how did it get to that point? And why did it stop at some point is always the question I ask. Um, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to pinpoint just because of the, the vastness of our country and the, the different work ethics. But, but when I think about some of the European work ethic or some of the European, um, work hours and work days, I am, I am nothing but envious. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it's, it's probably a little bit more productive. It's definitely a better life work balance. And I think a lot of Americans miss out on that because they are work driven. And not that there's anything wrong with that, if that's your choice, but when you're forced into it, it it's definitely a concern that I, I share. Can I get you to pinpoint something? Like when you hear that phrase that just came out of your mouth, the American work ethic, do you tend like in your gut, maybe I'm looking for a gut shot response. Do you tend to celebrate that work ethic or do you tend to like sort of recoil at it and be like, ah, that's a little misguided. It's a little more complicated than that. No, I, I actually almost tend to recoil from it. I, I feel like we, we as a country and, and, uh, and how we compare ourselves to others is always related to our job. People ask, what do you do? Well, what do you mean? What do I do? Right? I, I'm a lawyer, but I, I coach baseball, and I'll probably need Bruce's help. Uh, <laughs> some of that, uh, you know, I I do a lot of things, right? I don't do just things that are, are work related, but we always identify ourselves by our work, and then by our political parties. But that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> and I think that I, I think that's the wrong way to look at life. Uh, you know, I I when someone says, you know. What do you do? It really you should be asking, what makes you the happiest? Well, spending time with my family and my friends and making Palomas for out-of-town guests. That's what <laughs> makes me the happiest, right? But what do I do for a job? I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer for a job, and I work an exorbitant amount of hours, and I miss a lot of things in life, and I get I got to get paid for it. But the 
pressure that's put on an American and the American work ethic is is, is over overly abundant uh, in a way that harms many people instead of helps them. And I mean, I, I work for a public uh, entity, but I have worked for private entities and in the past law firms. And it's it's all it is is a competition. Who can get more hours in? Is it even effective hours? I, I don't know. So I do recoil from it. Yeah, no, wisely so. And I think on some level, you're right, right? It's the pie eating contest where the winner gets more pie. Right. Joe, you could be a sucker for a slice of pie. Oh, yeah. What do you make of this American fetish for work? Do you celebrate it? Do you recoil from it? What's your angle? I think I feel pretty similarly to Jeff. I I think it's it's not the most palatable thing and certainly something I would caution others from celebrating or being envious of. I think, you know, again, as a career switcher, I was fortunate enough to find a career that I really enjoyed doing like day to day and one where your work ethic in terms of like, you know, let's say hours put in outside of work to learn and study and grow your skills um, is largely rewarded. That can be very satisfying and especially when you enjoy it, you know, but um, I think frankly, that's not really true of probably the majority of jobs out there. I think some jobs just need to get done. And I think there's kind of a limit on you know, this sort of work ethic expectation of, you know, doing more and going above and beyond because at the end of the day, there's only so much, only so much money to go around, only so many privileged positions like manager or whatever um, to be awarded and things need to get done. And yeah, I, I tend to think of it as something that, yes, while there are, you know, a good amount of examples of people who put in the extra time, you know, really living that American dream, doing their thing, coming up, getting rewarded for it. <laughs> they're held up as examples and they're, you know, they're frankly just, they're just that, you know, they're, they're extraordinary um, cases and not ordinary at all. So there are times where I do wish that we were a little bit more, I think, empathetic to those workers who maybe you know, let's say like seasonal workers or retail employees, people who almost don't even get a holiday at times. Yeah. And I think, I think we could do with a little bit more, um, let's say time off, maybe a few more days a year we'll put on the calendar for people, things like that. I think, uh, let's just spread the, spread the wealth a little bit around. Yeah. Maybe, maybe people shouldn't have to work two or three jobs just to, <laughs> to get by. Um, I think that's true. Uh, Bruce, I hear you chuckling back there. I'm <laughs> certain you have thoughts on the matter. What's your read? Three things, really. One, and, and I'll preface all this by saying I'm very impressed with uh, with Joe and Jeff's answers. But one, yeah, I hadn't paid much attention to how people work in other parts of the world. Yeah, I think the Europeans have a better balance than we do here in the United States. Um, but I haven't paid enough attention to it to make any really memorable comment on it. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I think um, I think the situation, the current state of working in America, uh, a simple word to describe it would be messy. It's not clean at all. 
particularly with the pandemic and having people working from home and the great resignation that people aren't necessarily interested in going back to the office. It's a really confusing time here where things are changing and, and it's being, again, I just use the word messy. It's, it's uh, unfathomable, some of the things that are, that are happening. But third, and my main point, no matter how much it's changing, no matter how messy it's getting, I still think there's a problem in this country of a growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots in terms of employment. Um, I recently read a book by Farrah Stockman. It's called American Made. Um, she worked for one of those, new, either a New York paper or magazine, I can't remember which, but she was sent out to Indianapolis to take a look at a ball bearing plant uh, that was being moved uh, to Mexico back in the very early years of the Trump administration. And she was assigned to go out there and see what she could find out. And she ended up writing this book about three workers at the plant. One was a a white guy who was in administration in the plant, worked in the office, was managerial and whatnot. The other two, a white woman, a single white mother, and an African-American male worked on the floor of the factory. Um, she, in a pretty important job that nobody thought a woman, <laughs> amazing, could do. Um, and so when the factory closed and headed off to Mexico, she asked all of them, you know, to tell the story of what happened to them. Not surprisingly, the managerial type landed on his feet in another successful job somewhere and apparently is, is doing really well. The woman who was um, given or earned, really, uh, the position that she earned working on the floor is still struggling trying to figure out what the heck she can do. The third person, <laughs> actually, I like his story the best because one person landed on their feet, the other one's still trying to find her feet. And then you would think that another guy who worked on the floor, just making ball bearings and whatnot, that he too might have trouble finding a way to land on his feet. But actually he took the closing of the plant as an opportunity because he liked to cook barbecue. And so he's actually opened himself a food truck and is now doing what makes him happy. And I think that's that's very cool when you combine what it is that actually pays the bills with what it is that makes you happy. But I, I come back to the one guy landed on his feet rather easily and the other woman is still struggling to restate this case that this growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots in this country is is something that we, uh, we very much need to address. Hear, 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 hear. And Bruce, I will, as I did when you were on the podcast, link to Farrah Stockman's American Made in the show notes. Um, uh, I should tell you that a listener ended up picking up uh, Tara Westover's (laughs) book, Educated, because of your recommendation. Excellent. Tara still hasn't contacted me about writing my biography, but uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. (laughs) It's merely a matter of time. On this, we must agree. Bruce, I, I have to ask you, though, you, you had brought up in the text of your answer that work-life balance issue. And, you know, when you look back with the wisdom of hindsight on this work-life balance thing, when you look back on your career, how do you feel about that work-life balance that you had before you slid into retirement, <laughs> the perfect work-life the perfect balance. perfect work-life balance in retirement, yeah. Um, 
well, I'm the bad person or wrong person to ask about this because I think I mentioned on a previous podcast that finding balance was uh, not something that I was very good at. Um, in fact, here I'll, I'll tell you a story. When I uh, 12 years ago, when my uh, when my wife said, "Hey, we're getting divorced." Um, I walked into my dean's office, who was my boss at the University of South Carolina at the time, and I said, hey, we're getting a divorce. And I will never forget his very first words to me as he had this stunned look on his face. And he said, is it because you work too much? And it wasn't really, but I hadn't realized how much of a workaholic I was. And yeah, we could, you know, have fun and whatnot, but... um, I, I failed the, the course in how to, how to balance work and life. I, I really didn't do well. And if I had it all to do over, you know, I'd, I'd certainly try to take a, a, a more balanced approach. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And I will say as a beneficiary of some of your hard work, I'm wicked grateful for all the time you put in and, uh, I'm sorry to hear you frame it that way. Yeah. Well, it's just not, it's just not healthy. Yeah. Yeah, but you're not alone. Oh, no, not at all. Jeff, just a few moments ago, was talking about uh, the exorbitant hours that he put in. Jeff, how do you navigate the work-life balance thing? I'd imagine a lot is expected of you both at your job. And like you said, you got four kids at home. You're coaching baseball. How's your balance? What can you teach us about it? So, ironically, I left a law firm where I was representing 10 communities in various capacities, but two of them as the main attorney, two of them as the main assistant attorney, and then six on special projects to go to one one of my clients in-house that said, hey, just come work for us. Okay. And I thought to myself that it would be a streamlined life and I would have one-tenth the uh, <laughs> work or the time commitment. And I think I'm learning or I've learned as my fifth year anniversary the hard way that, that that's not the case. Now, do I think that people should get paid without having to put in their time and their effort? Absolutely not. You have to put in your effort. Sometimes I have to have conversations with staff. I tell them, listen, you know, when you walk out of here, tomorrow is tomorrow. There's nothing that's going to get resolved tonight. Don't email other employees. Don't call. Don't call me. Enjoy your night. And I, I, I struggle with it. I still struggle with it to this day. But I do. I put in my time to take off. And when I'm done, I'm done. I try and turn off the phone. My wife will tell you that never happens. <laughs> um, but we do make a lot of time for each other, usually around dinner that, that I'm often cooking for everybody. I had two sous chefs last night. Actually, I had four. My, my oldest son and his girlfriend were over and they were helping too. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to plan at least one thing a day with people in your family. Now, if that's everybody or in my case, sometimes it's depending on who has a game. But you got to do it and you got to turn off the phone. You got to turn off the email. And I know I don't always practice what I preach, but I think that's the, the key is to break up your day into these are my work hours. These are my and these are my home life hours. And it's easier said than done, but that's definitely a goal I try to achieve. Uh, and to the other point about the I guess to Bruce's point about the three different types of workers, I'm in a position where I can take a day. I can take a day off because I have a a bank of time and go see my son graduate grammar school, right? And not everybody has that. And that is probably one of the main points I was trying to make is that that's where society is failing us. And I tell my employees, listen, 
your son's only going to graduate eighth grade once. Right? Some kids may take eighth grade twice, you know, like mine, <laughs> most, but, but they're only going to graduate once. That's more important than anything you can solve at work today. And that's the philosophy. I dig it, man. I dig it. I'm glad you're, you're, you're pursuing it, right? You're chasing that thing and it's not easy. Um, I'm chasing something similar. Um, and just hearing you talk about it is a, is a very friendly reminder. Now, Joe, like you said, you, you switched careers. You, you moved into a career where there can be a lot of margin mm-hmm. for your life, but there's also this culture of constant study, constant work, competition, sharpening your saw. Mm-hmm. What have you figured out about this work-life balance thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I think like Jeff, maybe even more so, I'm very privileged to now work from home full-time. Um, and it's partially the pandemic, partially the the industry, you know. Um, many people cannot. I could take an hour during the workday and hang out and chat on a podcast, and that's great. But I'll put in the time later, and that's the trick, especially when you work at home. Like... <laughs> It, it it's not necessarily something that you can just, you know, hang up and walk out the door and forget about. And sometimes I do miss that about some of the other jobs that I've had, just being able to put it down, walk out and feel pretty good about not thinking about it until I, until I showed up the next day. Um, another kind of common trope in tech is the imposter syndrome, right? Where you're sort of always kind of feeling like you don't know as much as other people and kind of vaguely feeling like if you're not really trying to get ahead, you're falling behind. And it has very real consequences in my life. Like it's it's tough to say exactly what the cause is, but you know, I, a few years ago I started having panic attacks, <laughs> and I still do. It might be partially work related, who knows? But I mean, there are times where you definitely feel a lot of pressure to get things done, kind of get ahead, stay a step ahead. You know, try not to fall behind. Yeah, it's it's a tough balance. I don't think ultimately I would really trade it. Again, I think I've been very fortunate and very privileged to have the flexibility that I do. You know, the job market is obviously um, in my favor at the moment. Um, so you wouldn't really trade it, but you got to be careful. And um, like Jeff was saying, you know, you gotta you gotta know when you're just gonna turn it off, when you're not gonna you're not going to check email, you know, you're not going to check email before bed, first thing when you wake up, that kind of thing. Requires a good amount of discipline. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would be remiss to, to not say that I'm, I'm, I'm real sorry that, you know, you broke down a bit and, um, had the panic attacks. I, I will also tell you that I can commiserate in the last six months, my body basically shut down and I thought it was a, bunch of physical stuff um it turned out i mean some level it was it was just tension oriented Mm -hmm. been in and out of the hospital basically since january and uh nothing fatal but nothing fun and Mm -hmm. i i honestly thought that if i took this pandemic head on right I was committed to, to to not languishing. I knew I was going to have to thrive and try to be a good model for my kid and for my students. Started a couple podcasts, you know, making a movie, wrote and recorded an album, you know, a lot of parenting, you know, teaching full time, and and 
and it caught up with me. <laughs> Yo, it just caught up with me. And, um, and it was all in a, in a good, faithful, throttled effort to, you know, create spaces for other people to thrive, either through the podcast or through teaching or through this documentary film. Like, it's all about, like, just trying to, like, create opportunities for dialogue. And it's what I love. I love everything I'm doing. And yet, mm -hmm. yeah, the anxiety of it all just got the best of me. And so um, I'm sorry. On some level, I'm with you. And uh, it's some it's some hard earned wisdom you picked up. And I know our listeners are grateful for it. Indeed, I think our listeners will hear that all three of you uh, have some hard earned wisdom. Let's imagine for a moment that I, I tasked you with the endeavor to write a book about working. Yeah. <laughs> what would you call the book? <laughs> what what would your thesis be like? What would you try to argue in this book? And then, and then I'm gonna push a little bit. What would you call the first chapter? Now, now, Bruce, in our podcast together, you referenced a couple books. You're a big reader. You're also a pretty darn good writer. So we're gonna start with you. You're gonna write a book about working. What are you gonna call it? What are you gonna argue? And what are you gonna call the first chapter? Actually, it's funny. I'm actually writing a book about retirement. <laughs> Are you really? I am, yeah. Four years of retirement. I haven't quite come up with a title yet. Um, well, based on our conversation so far, my title to the book should come as no surprise. My, my title would be, and there's a question mark at the end of it, so that's why I'll say it this way. The title would be Defined by Work. And the thesis, <laughs> the thesis of the book would be, I sure as hell hope you're not. Um, I hope that work doesn't define you. I mean, I, I'm, it's not that I think people should just go punch a clock and do shoddy work. I mean, I honestly believe people can be working hard and doing the best they possibly can. And, but I also think that we need to <laughs> look at ourselves and go, you know, are, are we defined by work? And, and I hope the answer would be no. And the first chapter would actually, um, <laughs> something I said to my granddaughter on many occasions, we'd kind of joke back and forth looking at each other and we would go, seriously? <laughs> seriously? <laughs> so that's the title of the first chapter. And that first chapter would uh, have some vignettes about uh, people who kind of work too hard. Seriously, you want to work this hard? I actually just finished reading Katie Tours. She's uh, a host for one of MSNBC's news programs at two o'clock. She wrote a little memoir called um, Rough Draft. And when she talked about having her first child and she wanted to just go back to work like the next day, she had, she had like those privileged among us. She had something like five or six weeks um, to just kick back, but she wanted to go right back to work. And her husband just looked at her and said, you know, well, he didn't say it, but he could have said it. He could have said, seriously. Yeah. I mean, it too close to home, dude. Uh, <laughs> I had six weeks off. After my kid was born, she was born in March, the lead up to the AP exams. I teach two AP classes. I took uh, a day and a half off, and I was back to work right. uh, like a sucker. Dad said I get six weeks off every summer, and summer was around the corner. But still, seriously? <laughs> seriously? Seriously? Jeff, 
what are you going to call your book about working? What are you going to argue? Well, I mean, based on this theme, um, which I think we all agree on the theme of the work-life balance, this being uh, an inside joke among the three of us, sorry, Joe, but I think I would call my book, Don't You Have a Party to Go To? <laughs> Uh, I still have the book in which that was autographed to me, written by the great author, Mr. Field here. Um, but it is it, it is fitting. And and, and I, I absolutely 100% agree with Bruce. We're, you shouldn't just get money for sitting there and doing nothing all day long. You've got to work hard. You've got to do it proper. But there's a point, and I think we, we kind of belabor this, there's a point where that's, that's, that's time to shut off. And it's time to go to what's more, what's the most important thing to you. And I think that's the title of my first chapter would be, what's the most important thing? Question mark. I don't know the answer. I know the answer for myself. But that's what I think you have to ask yourself, right? And I think in that book would talk about the work-life balance. I think it would talk about being successful at work and ensuring that, you know, you're not the guy that they want to fire. I would also have a very hard time writing that book for any non-office worker. I just don't know what they go through. I don't know what their day's like. I don't know if they're done at five o'clock and they don't have to make a decision, which is also liberating in a way. Whereas, you know, at six, seven, eight o'clock at night, I still get people asking me questions, right? But I do think the key is it's time to hang it up. It's time to hang up the, the coat. It's time to go take your Mr. Rogers jacket off and put your sweater on and spend time at home with the kids or, or whatever it is you want to do that makes you happy. And I think that's the, the first chapter. But I really would call it, don't you have a party to go to? I love it. I love everything about the response. Joe, it's time for you to write the book. What are you going to call it? I, I would probably title it something like, so you're 23 and six figures in debt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to bang on the student loan drum too hard here because I think, you know, we're probably all pretty familiar with that story but you know it's the reality i think a lot of people my generation face being told to go to college for x y and z reasons and i like i said i don't regret my time in school but you know there's no real guarantees and you got to think hard about kind of marrying what you're passionate about versus the realities of the other things you want to accomplish in life like marriage or buying a house so i'd probably start there chapter one i don't know i I feel like I use the phrase ass backwards a lot, so it'd probably would probably be called <laughs> ass backwards. Um, I find I, I find myself coming back to that phrase when I describe how I got into tech. In long story short, I was working a job after grad school that was always meant to be temporary, but it was just a super oppressive environment, and I quit without having anything lined up, and was just throwing applications around and I applied for was a it's a marketing analytics firm here in Chicago. And I thought like, oh yeah, I have, you know, some like teaching English background, like linguistics literature kind of thing. Like maybe I could be a copywriter for a bit and try writing and see what happens. And then they got back to me and they're like, oh we have this opening on the software team where you're, you know, triaging emails and communicating with people, reproducing bugs and watching our servers and using those tools and stuff. Just a high communication kind of functional role, management adjacent. And I said, you know, what the heck? <laughs> Sounds cool. I like computers. I did a little bit of programming when I was younger. Like, you know, I'd see what's up over here. Just 
turns out that I really like doing that kind of thing and it pays very well. So kind of a matter of luck and exposure. So yeah, that's what I would go with. I dig it. A little bit of luck, a lot of hard work. It all makes sense. Now, listen, fellas, um, for various reasons, I, I, I got a lot more Gen Z listeners to this podcast in the last couple of seasons. And until these Gen Z listeners read, do you have a party to go to? <laughs> <laughs> or defined by work? Or so you're 23 and six figures in debt. Before they read these three masterpieces, New York Times bestsellers, all three of them, perhaps I might get you to give them a snapshot of some of the wisdom that might be injected into those books. What would you like to tell your 16 to 25-year-old self about how to best engage with work? I give you the chance here to speak directly to my younger listeners in an effort to do something that has come up once or twice in our discussion right? In an effort to make their worlds a better place. So let's start with Bruce. What would you like to tell young Bruce about how to do it? I mean, I remember on the podcast when you had me on before, um, like what kind of advice do you give to people? And I remember on the podcast that I, I quoted uh, James Comey, former FBI director, when he was speaking at a graduating class of uh, new FBI agents um, that I happened to be there because I knew somebody who was graduating. Um, and it was like, what kind of advice do you give to people who are going out in the field? And uh, he gave them five bits of advice. I'll quickly run through them. Um, one is find joy in your work. Two is work hard. Now, so <laughs> are those contradictory? No, I don't think so at all. Um, you can work hard and you can find joy in your work as well. So those are the first two. The third, of course, was find balance, which we've yeah, talked about enough. And the fourth and fifth were you know, respect all the people that you meet and uh, respect the job. Other than the one about um, find joy in your work, which I thought was a little odd to say to FBI agents, um, I just think that to me has been the best advice, but to push it back to where I started, just don't take it so seriously. Find something you like doing, work hard at it, but leave it behind when you walk out that door. Here, here, brother. That is some well-earned wisdom. And I'll confess to you, I needed to hear that. That framing was really helpful to me. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Now, Joe, a wise man. Joe, what type of wisdom would you like to impart upon my Gen Z listeners about how to engage with work? Yeah, I um, actually think about uh, before my current job, I worked at a school district and so I got the chance to work with some really great, young, bright um, high school students. And the thing I kind of told them was that you may not know what you want to do today. You know, you, today you may not know what you want to do in 10 to 20 years, um, but you're going to want options for your life, right? And some, I think some people know, some people kind of are fortunate enough to know pretty early on what they're going to want to do, what's really going to make them happy, you know, what they can show up to day to day when things get tough and still feel like, 
you know, this is the right thing for me. But I think a lot of kids, um, a lot of students don't. And that was very much myself until I was 31. <laughs> so it's okay if you don't necessarily know what you think, you know, will make you happy. And that's both in terms of what you do and maybe how much it makes or what kind of lifestyle it affords you. But give yourself options, give yourself a breadth of experiences, you know, have fun, live life, try to have as many different kinds of experiences as you can, as that you think is that you think are interesting. And, and then over time, I think you'll find what makes you happy and what kind of um, lifestyle you want to live and what kind of adult you want to be. We kind of talk about work like it defines us and who we are, and we relate to that a lot. And that's okay if that's you, but it may not be. So yeah, just try different things and find what makes you happy. Yeah, sage wisdom. Jeff, how about some more sage wisdom for the younger ones? You know, there's different phases in people's lives where you're able to put more into one aspect of life and then scale back another. So I go back to a cartoon that I saw and it talked about basically three different phases in your life. The young part of your life, you have two out of three things. You have your time and you have your energy. As you get older to our age, around 30, 40, 50, you start having kids, you have money and you have energy, but you have no time. And when you get into the later phases of your life, you have money and time, but not a lot of energy. People got to understand the phase of their life and where they're at. Life is a balancing act, and you've got to figure out where you are in the phase of your life and what that balance needs. And it's going to tip. It's going to shift from work to family to neither at some point. But you can't be all things to all people at all times. And that includes your work, and that includes, unfortunately, at times your family. I think that's fair. It makes perfect sense to me. Joe... Jeff, Bruce, thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Thank you for joining me in conversation. This has been a bona fide blast. I've been looking forward to this for some time. You all delivered splendidly. I have enjoyed every second of our conversation, and I know our listeners will also. It has been an honor pleasure and a privilege having y'all on the podcast thanks for everything enjoy your summer find some margin have some fun take care guys thanks daniel thank you thanks